the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. As you're turning there, there will be an all-officers prayer meeting in the chapel afterwards for those who are able to be there. The announcement was not sent out in advance, and this is one of those rare instances in which I cannot be there uh, because I have something that I immediately must take care of after the, after the evening service uh, that is unavoidable. Um, even though it won't take me long, I will not be able to be at the prayer meeting. And... Uh, that is very unusual because I love our prayer meetings and would long to be there. But uh, for those officers who can, I'll ask an elder, whoever wishes to do it, to just lead the prayer time after the service. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We will read verses 18 through 27. Let's pray before reading. Our Heavenly Father, as we, your people, bow before your sovereign throne, we, we offer our profound gratitude for your word, that you have given to us your word, which is without error in the whole and in the part, divinely inspired, and we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the word will now illumine its page and help us to see Jesus, grant that our hearts may hate those things that are contrary to your nature and love those things that are in accord with your nature. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will conform us more to the image of your Son, having studied this passage together, than we were before opening its page this evening. And Father, it's always possible that in the midst of your people, even on a Sunday evening, someone is here who does not know you, who is a stranger to grace. And we would ask that your Holy Spirit might grant to that person saving faith and enable that one to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
When Adam sinned, all men sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And this tragedy brought a great weight to humanity, but also brought a great and burdensome weight to the entirety of the created order. When Paul speaks of this weight, he uses the term groan, and he uses that term three times of three distinctly distinctly related but separable instances. First of all, he says that creation groans, creation groans. Let's take the time to read verses 19 through 22 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so we see from this passage that man was not alone in his fall. Creation, of course, means the subhuman nature, those things that are animate, those things that are inanimate in nature, or what Calvin so often calls the theater of creation. A bond exists between man and creation. Creation is not able to be what it was first intended to be. Creation is, so to speak, out of joint because of the fall of man. And so we read in verse 20 of the futility under which creation has fallen. In verse 21 of the decay of the created order. And in verse 22 of the pains, actually the pains of childbirth to which the fallenness of this world is compared. Creation is huge in a Christian view of the world. And we've seen that time and time again in the scriptures and time and time as we've worked our way slowly through the book of Romans. We must not think that matter is unimportant. God has created this world. We must not minimize the importance of the body. We must take care of natural resources, not in the way in which humanists would have us think of these things, but in a God-centered way. We must care deeply about art and harmony and beauty because this is part of the created order of God. But according to this text, nonetheless, creation is fallen. And what does it mean when the text teaches us that creation is fallen? It means that man and the broader creation have a bond, and that that bond is now corrupted by the fall. The best illustration I've ever heard of this was given by uh, the New Testament scholar C.E.B. Cranfield, late of Durham, who says, you can think of it this way. Think of the choir representing creation, and think of a soloist as representing humanity. Think of what happens to the choir when the soloist refuses to sing his part in the choir offering. Wouldn't be good, would it? The bond between the choir, creation, and the soloist, humanity, is damaged. The choir cannot fulfill its purpose if the soloist fails to fulfill his part. So creation cannot fulfill its role because humanity has not fulfilled its role. Now I think that's an excellent way of thinking of it and precisely what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. 
Creation has been subjected to futility, not through its own fault. Notice again how it puts it here in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It was fallen in Adam in hope God promises redemption. So is this permanent? No, it is not permanent. No, decay and pain, according to the Word of God, are thankfully temporary. Verse 19 speaks of that eager longing that we have. Notice again the very words. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is portrayed expecting deliverance. And verse 20 points to that hope when it says, For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What does this mean? Of course, it is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ will come in the clouds and he will right all wrongs and there will be the new heavens and the new earth. The heavens shall rejoice and the earth will be glad. The sea will resound. The trees in the forest will sing for joy. Psalm 96. The choir and the soloist will again sing in harmony one with another. There will be no more dumps. There will be no more nuclear catastrophes. There will be no more ugly music. No more despicable art. No more cancer in our bodies. All will be restored when Jesus Christ comes again. So creation groans according to this text. But also, secondly, Christians groan. Now you know that, don't you? Christians groan in this fallen world, don't we? So let's read again verses 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." And not only the creation, he says, but the Christian also groans. Now, you know what it is to groan. Uh, We can groan about serious matters, but sometimes we can groan in other ways. We have children, I'm sure, that are saying three more weeks till Christmas vacation, or however long it is, longing for the future, desiring the future. Well, that's the point. We groan within ourselves because we are longing for the future, that God has for us awaiting adoption. Well, aren't we already adopted? We have seen that here in Romans. We've seen it in our study of Galatians and Ephesians. Well, yes, of course we are already adopted. But there is a future aspect to that adoption. So that in verse 17, we are told of this chapter, If children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided, we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. And so there is an aspect of our adoption that is future. What is that adoption for which we wait? Well, we are told explicitly in verse 23 
that this aspect of adoption for which we wait is the resurrection in the last day. He says in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, of which the Holy Spirit is the first installment. And so the fatigue that we now know in life, the physical frailty, the disease, don't we long to be free? You have some days in which you feel well, other, way, other days in which you don't. Perhaps some of you are at the stage where you have no day in which you feel well. This morning as I was preaching and sat down, I said, oh no, all these things I intended to say, I didn't say. They just flew out of my mind. Well, I have Sundays like that, and I have other Sundays that are quite different, but it's the fallenness of this world, don't you see? The fatigue of the body, the frailty. We long to be free from these things. And certainly those who are undergoing very, very serious illness and fatigue know what it is to long for that day in which you will be free in the resurrection on the last day. Well, we are saved in hope. And so in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it without patience. And the entire pericope section is a section in which we are told that the Christian is living in hope. And hope is an eschatological word that points forward to the return of Jesus Christ. The New Testament focuses Christian living on the resurrection. We know that it is the resurrection power of Jesus that determines how we live as Christians. Romans chapter 6, for example. But again, we live between two poles, the resurrection of Christ and the promise of the return of Christ. That's where we are as believers. Heaven, when we die, oh, what a glorious thing. But as important as that is, the focus of the New Testament is not simply on heaven when we die. It is on the resurrection of the body and the last day and the reunion of a glorified body with a soul that is completely free from sin. The coming of Christ and the resurrection, this is our hope. And so when we stand together and we recite the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, Wednesday night, the Nicene Creed, and we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That is such a Christian thing to do. Do you realize we're the only ones who can say that we have the Savior who was raised from the dead and that we also will be raised because of His resurrection. That He is the first fruits of those who sleep. That in Him our resurrection has already in principle taken place because He is first fruits. That the beginning of our resurrection has already taken place in His resurrection from the dead. And so we should not not be only concerned when we see that Christianity is unconcerned with the things of this world, but the trend is now in many circles all in the opposite direction. Christianity is not Christianity if it is unconcerned with the world to come. And that primarily, the Christian is first of all an otherworldly man or an otherworldly woman. And that is why we are practical. 
Peter says that it is because we have a living hope that we can gird the loins of our minds and live in holiness of life. So when we preach these things, people think that we're being impractical. Oh, don't talk about heaven, the resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth. Give us something that will help us now. But this is that which will help us now. The hope develops in you when you realize the truth about the present world. So we live responsibly in this world, but we do not allow it to captivate our hearts as Christians. Because our hearts are already captivated by the world that is coming, that has broken into time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how do we live realistically in the present as those who groan and long for the redemption of our bodies? Well, we live with patient fortitude. And so we are told in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It hurts now, but it will not always hurt. For now, how do we live? Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Do you know this groaning within yourself of which Paul the Apostle speaks? Do you know the hope That is within the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is the proper attitude of the believer as we groan in the fallenness of this world. Do you see what Paul is saying? The Apostle Paul is saying the creation is fallen. We are fallen with it. But we who believe in Christ are redeemed. And so no matter how we we hurt in this present world... The groaning that is within our hearts is a groaning that is there because we belong to the age to come. That's why we groan. We're longing in hope. And hope in the New Testament means something that is absolutely certain. We long in hope for the resurrection at the last day. That full adoption that will come. And so it seems that the Apostle Paul's logic is so so rapid here, he moves us immediately to the third thing that we need to see. The Holy Spirit helps us as we groan. Do we groan and long for the age to come? Well, the Holy Spirit now who indwells us helps us in our own groaning. And so we see in verses 26 and 27, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so verse 26 speaks of our weakness. The suffering of the fall extends right down to your prayer life, but so does God's redemption. The Holy Spirit assists us in omnipotent sympathy. 
The burdens of the fall are so great that I often don't know how to express myself in prayer. That's what Paul is saying. The weakness of the body, the pain that we endure, my concern for others is so deep within my heart that often I don't know how to express in words these things, these longings, these hardships. Phillips well paraphrases those agonizing longings which never find words. Longing so intense that you don't know what to say. Ephesians 2.18, for by Christ we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's the answer to those groans. The Holy Spirit comes to our aid in weakness. Lord, how do I help my child? Lord, how do I care for my family? Lord, how do I pay this bill? Lord, when will the pain end? Father, when will we see your kingdom extended in this country or that? Well, you and the Spirit of God both cry, Abba, and the Holy Spirit wings your words to heaven. And the wonder of this prayer is that as your words are winged to heaven, with all of the imperfection with which you and I pray, it is presented before the Father in the perfection of the merit of Christ and in the power of the Spirit of God. Our unspoken words. What's the value in that? Things that are so deep that we don't even know how to say them. Things that hurt so badly we don't know how to put them in words. Well, the text says God searches your heart as his child. I know I can go to God in prayer. I simply do not know what to pray for. I'm perplexed. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to ask. But he finds unuttered groans and he understands. Listen, he finds your unuttered groans and he understands every one of them. He knows you exhaustively. He knows what has been planted there by his own working through his word and the power of the Spirit of God. He understands every groan that you express. They are consistent with his will because they're authored ultimately by the Spirit of God. They are, they are his intercessions and they please him. The measure is not your weakness but God's grace and his knowledge of our hearts. So people of God, you have two divine intercessors in the midst of the weakness and groaning of this fallen world. You have Jesus, our great high priest, and you also have the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And the Holy Spirit creates in you a desire to commune with God. The distance between you and God is eliminated through your divine intercessors And on your knees you explore the Trinity and you commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as you offer your prayer to the Father through the mediation of the Son and in the power of the Spirit of God. Prayer is an exploration of the Trinity. You are right there when you pray in the heavenlies, in union with Christ and through the powerful work of the Spirit. You are right there in the throne room of God. You are right there in God's heart. Let these truths renew your life in prayer. Communion with God now is a foretaste of your full inheritance that is promised you and that awaits you. And no entrance into God's presence is possible except through the Son 
and in the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit then helps us in our weakness. Notice again how Paul puts it. Verse 26 and following, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And his word here is very descriptive. Sunan tilambanatai. Now I'll show you another place in which you can see how that word is used. It's uh, back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 40. A very familiar passage to you. It's the passage about Martha and Mary in Luke's Gospel 10. Let me start at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and the woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And as she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching... But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. That's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans of the Spirit who helps us in our praying. Someone who comes along and who picks up the weight, who helps to carry the load. We are really helpless and in need. You ever deal with something heavy about to drop it and someone came along and took the other side? I remember I worked with my father for some summers and uh, there came in this long flatbed with this tremendous, what looked like a tremendous steel pole, you know, huge thing. And all the big men just looked at it and didn't know what to do. And I went over and picked it up. It was aluminum. But still... It took someone on the other end to carry it where it needed to go. Well, that's the kind of thing he has in mind here, except in a far, far more serious way, the groanings and needs of our lives. Those wordless prayers, God understands. The Holy Spirit picks up the other end, and he wings those needs to the Lord. Sandy and Hedlum, in their great commentary on Romans, put it this way, "...nor are we alone in our struggles." The Holy Spirit supports our helplessness. Left to ourselves, we do not know what prayers to offer or how to offer them. But in those inarticulate groans which rise from the depths of our being, we recognize the voice of none other than the Holy Spirit. He makes intercession, and His intercession is sure to be answered. For God who searches the inmost recesses of the heart can interpret His own Spirit's meaning. He knows that his own will regulates its petitions and that they are offered for men dedicated in his service. Paul's point is that as you live in a fallen world that groans, and as you in your own person groans in longing for the resurrection, you are not alone. And so the hope is sure The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And when the Spirit of God within helps to take your prayers to heaven, you are already experiencing the down payment, the earnest of that wondrous revelation of glory that is promised to you as God's child. So I ask you, do you know this? 
Do you know these things experientially? Do you know these things in your heart? Well, maybe there's someone here who has no idea what it means to have communion with God. No idea what it really means to pray. The Holy Spirit in the heart, you have no idea what that really means. God's Word says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never drive away. Will you believe this? Will you believe it now? Will you trust Jesus Christ? Will you make your first prayer, your first prayer of communion with God, the prayer that Jesus will be your Savior? Now, in closing, I want to turn to J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of this passage because I find it to be very helpful as long as you remember that it's a paraphrase. And here's what he says. I think I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, end of of chapter 8. Here's J.B. Phillips' rather famous paraphrase of this portion of Romans 8. In my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality not because it chooses to be blind, but because in God's purpose it has been so limited, yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end of that in the end the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. It is plain to anyone with eyes to see that at the present time all created life groans in a sort of universal travail. And it is plain too that we, who have a foretaste of the Spirit, are in a state of painful tension. While we wait for that redemption of our bodies, which will mean that at last we have realized our full sonship in Him. We were saved by this hope, but in our moments of impatience, let us remember that hope always means waiting for something that we haven't yet got. But if we hope for something we cannot see, then we must settle down to wait for it in patience. The Spirit of God not only maintains this type within us, but helps us in our present limitations. For example, we do not know how to pray worthily as sons of God, but His Spirit within us is actually praying for us in those agonizing longings which never find words. And God, who knows the heart's secrets, understands, of course, the Spirit's intention as He prays for those who love God. Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to His plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. God, in His foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of His Son, that He might be the eldest of a family of many brothers. He chose them long ago. When the time came, He called them. He made them righteous in His sight and then lifted them to the splendor of life as His own sons. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not shield His own Son but gave Him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with Him everything else that we need? Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ, and Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. 
Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, pain, or persecution, can lack of clothes or food, danger to life and limb, the threat of force of arms? Indeed, some of us know the truth of that ancient text. For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we win with an overwhelming victory through him who has proved his love for us. I have become absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither messenger of heaven nor monarch of earth, neither what happens today nor what may happen tomorrow, neither a power from on high nor a power from below, nor anything else in God's whole world has any power to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's people said... Amen.